I'm sorry, you can sit there and look and play with all your silly machines as much as you like. Is Gascoigne going to have a crack? He is, you know. Oh, I think! Brilliant! He's round the goalkeeper, he's done it! Absolutely incredible! He launched himself six feet into the crowd and Kung Fu kicked a supporter who was without a shadow of an out giving him lip. Oh, I say! It's amazing! He does it tame and tame and tame again. Crank up the music! Charge a glass! superfluous suffixes, the glorious partisans of local radio commentary, meaningless statistics and unnecessary kit changes. These are the footballing loves and hates of Peter Drury. Brought to your ears by The Athletic, this is Football Clichés. Right now, you can enjoy The Athletic for just £3.99 a month as part of our January sale. Enjoy great analysis and in-depth features from the very best football writers around, as well as ad-free versions of all of our podcasts. Just go to theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod. That's theathletic.com forward slash cliches pod and sign up. Hello everyone and welcome to episode 53 of the Football Clichés pod. I'm Adam Hurry and with me, as he often is, is Charlie Eccleshare. Um The words paternity leave, just a words on a piece of paper to you, aren't they really? Yeah, I'm, I'm on paternity leave. I'm on months of paternity leave, but with a little, little bit of cliches thrown in there just to kind of you know, keep keep my eye in. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all it's all it's all above board. It's a bit. I, it, I feel like the closest football equivalent is like a player cutting short his honeymoon to complete a transfer. It's just everything goes out the window. <laughs> you know, football cliches comes first, which is good. It's good to yeah, know. exactly. Anyway. And I and I think my son appreciates that. Yeah. Well, speaking of bundles of joy, alongside you in in a virtual sense, we have Peter Drury. How are you, Peter? Adam, I'm well, thank you. I'm very excited. Um, I, yes. I think I think this is a cool thing to be on, and I've never been cool before. So thank you for thank you for having me. Nonsense! You're one of the uh, one of the coolest commentators I know, and I'm not just saying that because you've agreed to come on my podcast. But what what you have also achieved uh, at this very moment is you're the first ever guest to achieve the double on cliches. That is to feature in both the theme tune and the podcast itself. What an achievement! What an honour! And what a thrill! Uh, it really is, and. Um, I, I feel as though I've kind of, um, you know, set down a standard now for others to try and follow. I, I do fear, though, that it's that's the sort of obscure, meaningless landmark that we might be slamming later on. But let's not let's not spoil it just yet. Um, before you um, begin your duties as our guest on Mesut Harland Dicks this week, um, you're part of the adjudication panel for part one. Um, first of all, Charlie... One of the controversial moments of this weekend was a rather unexpected one. This was a, a betting company running a commentary bingo market as a kind of novelty attraction. Uh, this allowed punters to gamble on the exact words and phrases spoken by Sky Sports commentators Martin Tyler, Gary Neville and Jamie Carragher during Liverpool's 0-0 draw against Manchester United. I mean, a very curious selection of words and phrases were on offer here, Charlie, but they ranged from the very predictable dangerous free kick, which was 11-10, to 10, to the downright implausible and, if I may say so, slightly computer game sounding, it's like the Mary Celeste in here, which was 25 <laughs> to 1. And the whole thing was the whole thing was very odd. I mean, just from start to finish, every aspect of this is rather troubling in a, in a very inoffensive kind of way. 
Yeah, I mean, I looked at this, and I don't think it's the first time. I think this no. there was um, during the World Cup in 2018. I think there was a mar- there was a market, and then a bit of blowback, but nothing like as much as there was this time around. You know, it, it certainly it feels like um, this was maybe <laughs> the final straw. Some people's patience with outlandish betting markets, and maybe in the context of Kieran Trippier and all of that, it, it mm. felt uh, struck a bit of a bum note. I'm sure it was right for insider trading, but um, in terms of your profession, Peter. You're starting to be commodified. This is. Um, did you ever think you'd become sat at the centre of attention? Well, the the commentator should never be the centre of attention. That's that's the first thing no. to say. But um, beyond that, I must say, if I had been at the centre of it, I'd have felt very uncomfortable. I really would, yeah. because certain things you just say. I mean, that's why cliches become cliches. And yep. you know, if it's a corner, you say it's a corner. If it's a dangerous free kick, it's a dangerous free kick. And to, and to to be consciously or otherwise compromised by the knowledge that people yeah. might have bet on this, perhaps I'm taking this overly seriously. Perhaps I'm not. But you know, I wouldn't have liked it at all. I, know, I mean, it's not the first time it's happened, whether officially or unofficially. I think all of us mm. know that people are waiting for us to say the damn obvious. Um, that's, <laughs> that comes that comes with the territory. And there have been various games of sort of bingo down the years, but I'm not sure that there's been sort of official money at stake. I, I was uh, I was the son of a vicar, and my brothers and I mm. sometimes used to bet on what he'd say in his sermons, you know. And, <laughs> but, but he he never knew, and it it wasn't it wasn't um, you know public property this. But uh, I, I'm sort of glad for Martin's sake and everybody's that it went away. You mentioned it would have made you feel uncomfortable if you'd been subject to a betting market like that. I, I do wonder what odds we would have got on um, certain words and phrases I've heard you say over the last um, few years. Once you described Chelsea as lacking in selectorial latitude. I'm giving that a good 100 to 1. <laughs> yeah, uh, sorry. I can only say sorry. <laughs> Don't apologise. This podcast is often at pains to point out that cliches are not a bad thing, but any attempt to kind of override them is uh, also very much encouraged as well uh, we've heard from you the words such as insuperable and capacious um, which were right at the edge of my um, my vocabulary so thanks for introducing me to those over the years football is such a wonderful thing for for stretching your knowledge it's great for words it's great for words and and listen like you adam and charlie you know i see an awful lot of football matches and i commentate on an awful lot of football matches and i get bored of myself you know, and I get I get bored of the same. So part of the challenge and part of the fun is to try and find a different way of saying the same thing. And, and sure. I, you know, it's the same in throughout the journalistic trade, isn't it? There are only so many ways a big centre half can go up and head it away, you know. Mm. And, and if if once in a while you come up with some new manner of articulating a pretty age old phenomenon within our game, which doesn't change that much, then I give myself a little tick. I, always in the knowledge that it probably sounded faintly ridiculous but i've, I've said this before uh, peter to, to adam like it's actually amazing the influence that commentators have on people like us who watch so much football as children because we we absorbed a lot of that language so i'm aware of there are so many phrases that i first heard when i was pretty young from football and they kind of seeped into my vocabulary and i probably used them and i probably sounded similarly ridiculous you know a nine-year-old <laughs> Talking about Greek gods descended from Mount Olympus. Yeah, I mean, well, that's Tosh, of course, and and um, so so much of what we say is Tosh. If you take it in isolation and out of context, I mean, it, it you know it's drivel, and and one of yes. the funniest things you can hear is say a pub conversation. God willing, we'll be back in a pub one day, 
um, a pub conversation between football fans whose language is derived from commentators, if you like, or journalists. You know, if you hear people in the pub saying, cool, he got up at the back stick, didn't he? And, he, you know, you think, why are you <laughs> saying why are you saying that? And they're saying it because some fool like you, if you'll excuse me, or me has written it or said it, you know, and yeah. um, we should all hang our heads. If, if there was any if there was any doubt that you were in the uh, the right place today that has been extinguished now you, you are in you're in comfortable hands and so are we I sense on a similar note Peter there was a psychological phenomenon first demonstrated in the 1960s called semantic satiation which is essentially if you stare at a word or phrase for a lengthy period of time it temporarily starts to lose its meaning for the reader uh, I was editing a piece the other day and uh, I noticed that West Ham hadn't been given their full name so I so I, I sort of stretched that out then I stared at it for a while and I thought do you know what the, the longer you stare at West Ham United the weirder and more unfamiliar it becomes so I decided to open a can of worms on on Twitter and ask people which of the 92 English league clubs has the most forgettable, disposable or unnecessary suffix, which I think is an important debate to have. I think West Ham might be the standout candidate. It's um, fundamentally because London doesn't suit United's. I feel United isn't a London-y thing. Yeah, that, that's interesting. I think, well, I don't know what sort of response you've had on Twitter, Adam, but I think West Ham fans might be irritated by the suggestion because when they sing their bubbles, <laughs> as the team comes out, pretty bubbles in the air, United is what happens. Uh, and so yeah. uh, that is um, something they obviously prize there, United. But I take your point. No, that, that's, that's absolutely fine. I mean, but as often with debates like this, Charlie, I don't think... Um, the fans of those clubs have ownership over this. You know, other fans and the media, we have a stake in this. We have to say their team name. So we ha we should have an opinion. So at this stage, because there was an awful lot of opinion um, raised about this, I feel like we should hammer out the criteria for what constitutes an unnecessary suffix. I think, I mean, simply being underused, I don't think is enough here. I mean, a lot of people were suggesting wolves, for example, because people just don't say their name out loud. But then... Wanderers is, is is quite a traditional thing, and there's not many of them, so I think it should stay. Um, well, I, th unusual. I think Wolverhampton would sound really weird on its own, wouldn't yes. it? Yes, yes, just it would. Wolverhampton without the Wanderers. But like I've written Wolves before, and then had it kind of um, extended out to Wolverhampton Wanderers, which mm. is completely correct. But Wolves feels so, um, you know, it, it feels acceptable almost to call them that, even at the first mention. I think. Uh, Peter, I think we should discount all the unusual suffixes. Um, Orient, Argyle, they're, they're all fine because they, they, are, they are sacred treasures in the kind of English footballing landscape. So they're fine. So I'm thinking places like, or clubs rather, clubs like Rotherham, who if you say Rotherham to me, my brain really has to flick through its kind of internal Rolodex to f figure out what their suffix is. Uh, Lincoln, I, you know, I think these can survive without them. They're one club cities to an extent. I think this is part of it. And, and cities and towns, when you told me we were going to discuss this, I gave it some thought, and I'm really glad that we are as one on the, the sacred nature of your Alexandras yes. and your Argyles and all of that. I rather like Wanderers too. Um, and I take your point that maybe all of the cities and towns are too much information because we know that stuff. Would mm. do Crawley need town? That, that's what I would question. And it, it's a very interesting one, actually, if you move up from towns to cities. For instance, if, if I am commentating on a game between Leicester City and Manchester City, 
the mm. temptation which you have to work very hard to avoid is to refer to Manchester City as City, mm. thereby insulting thousands of Leicester fans who, who are thinking, why are you calling them City? We're City. And so that requires you to call Manchester City, who against any other opponent you would probably just call City, Manchester City all of the time. And that's three more syllables and an extra second when you could do without it. They're both a blessing and a curse, these things. Um, and I, I would also say, having spoken about varying words and so on, we, again, in the journalistic or broadcasting trade, in a sense, should be grateful. Because if, if you are writing about Crawley Town, then it's nice for you to be able to start paragraph B with Crawley and paragraph C with Town, just for the sake of variation and, and so on. I, I, I absolutely echo that. I mean, I, I cover Tottenham and I have to say, for all the monologophobiacs out there where you, you can't use the same word more than nice. once, having Tottenham and Spurs as two totally... Like, having Spurs is such a gift yes. um, that you can use that as your second mention, whereas... I wouldn't feel comfortable writing the Gunners or, or something like that. But Spurs, I think we've talked about this before, Adam. I've, that's, mm. I think Spurs is probably right at the top of uh, acceptable usage of a nickname. Yeah, it's almost, it was, I don't even think of it as their nickname anymore. It's, they are very much an outlier. But I mean, I mean of all the touchy subjects, as, as Peter said, you've, you've got, we've got to be careful not to annoy fans. But of all the touchy subjects out of there, it feels like one of the more slightly pantomime ones. Because, But I mean, there are examples like, Sheffield United, and I would never do this myself, Peter, but um, Sheffield United being referred to simply as Sheffield, which really irritates Wednesday fans, and of course it would. Of yeah, course well, it would. That's a heinous crime. Did, did you hear Chris Wilder in a press conference the other day with, I think, a Norwegian journalist who said yes. Sheffield, and he said United, mate, or something like that. You know, <laughs> yeah. And quite right, because he's a fan and everybody in football loves Chris Wilder and because he's real, you know, and, and he's, he did speak for his fan base there. And to say Sheffield and, and some people, believe it or not, out there in the wide, wide world, probably not within these shores, you know, say Manchester teams. When a small team, if Sturm Gratz plays Manchester United, you know, we're playing Manchester. And uh, my goodness me, if only they knew the fury they were stirring. Well, I mean, it's it's not just about it's not just about favoritism. It's not just about differentiating and get, getting your facts right. To me, if you said Manchester, I would have no comprehension of that as a football club. It, it, it sparks no no image in my head in a footballing sense whatsoever. So it's amazing how how these tiny little tail end words have such a significance. And, so and on I'm, that I'm on that subject, Adam, just before you move on, if I may, just give a big mm. tick to the club formerly known as Stevenage Borough, who got rid. Ah who got rid and became so, Stevenage. Oh, well, that's oh. that's very unhelpful behaviour, isn't it? Because yeah, you just you just don't know what to do with yourself. I mean, I mean, I've said this before on this podcast. I used to pride myself in knowing all the grounds and all the full names, nicknames of 92 Football League clubs. But then when teams start getting promoted and teams start coming from nowhere, who are you? Um, it really does ruin it. It's um, I'm devastated about how, that, how much my knowledge of all of that has disintegrated. So Stevenage, Borough, thanks a lot. I'm glad we got to the bottom of that. And uh, uh, yeah, thanks for helping us explore that. Sorry to West Ham. Sorry to Rotherham. Sorry, perhaps even to MK Dons, but let's not go down that road. Let's get on to the main event. The, the reason why you are here, Peter Drury, you are our first Mesut Harland Dicks participant of 2021. Um, it's quite simple. Um, you're going to tell us three things that you really find rather charming about football and then three things that intensely irritate you about it as well. Let's kick off with the, the first thing you adore. Uh, tell us all about it. Well, the first thing I adore is unashamedly um, biased, upbeat, 
uncompromised broadcasting by local radio commentators and, <laughs> and club commentators. Those who are absolutely entitled to be one-eyed, blinkered and on the side of their team. But those who throw off their shackles, love their good moments without in any sense having to compromise their joy in the knowledge that there's a losing team who've conceded <laughs> the goal that their team has just seen. And particularly the pundits alongside them who are unremittingly biased and who cannot <laughs> see a foul committed by their team and who are always fouled by the other team. And, mm. and there's a lot of joy in that because, in a sense, more than any of us who do these things on national or international television or radio, they are reflecting the fan experience in a much more real way, actually, that hmm. journalistically, you might say they're often appalling because they, they just don't <laughs> see the big picture. But they are a, they are a fantastic reflection of, of realism. And actually, to be briefly more serious about it, within the journalistic or, or wider broadcasting trade, they sometimes have a very difficult um, tightrope to walk. Um, I, I'm good friends with the fellow who commentates for MUTV, who's mm -hmm. a very, very good broadcaster, good commentator, a fellow called Stuart Gardner. Um, yep. And of course, he has a very big viewership. He has to do <laughs> it properly. And when Manchester United are flying, that's a, that's a pretty easy job. But let's face it, there have been some sticky years and some horrible times. And this is a guy who has to be credible, has to satisfy the audience, cannot fall out with the club that he is employed by. Um, and that is tough for him week on week. Um, he's a really good guy, a really good broadcaster, and I, I just think he does it very, very well. And and I also think because I have been there that there are lots of good broadcasters, particularly on local radio right across the land, who mm. are waiting for their break, want something bigger and better, and kind of deserve it. And I don't, I don't want that to sound patronising. I really mean it. There's some top, top broadcasters out there who just need to get lucky and get heard and, and whatever. And they, they do a fabulous job. When I'm in the car on a Saturday afternoon, which I'm not very often, but if I'm going to an evening game or whatever, drive up yeah. the M1 and just keep pressing the button on your radio to get the next station up. And so you drive up from, <laughs> you know, from I live in Hertfordshire, so you go up sort of get a bit of Luton, a bit of Milton Keynes, and then Northampton Town and then Nottingham Forest and so on. And you hear some really good stuff on the radio and, and the colour and the passion um, and, and the, the feeling for community on those broadcasts is wonderful. We're going to get into a few examples of, of this gleeful phenomenon shortly. Um, before we do that, I mean, I, I realise bias is or the perception of bias is such a big deal for people who consume football commentary. I do question, I do wonder if it's really at the forefront of a commentator's mind. It can't be that difficult to be impartial, can it? It's not really a tightrope for you. It's, it's not difficult at all. I have a club, I go and watch them play with my family uh, and I've commentated on them many times and I promise you, I, th I think if anybody stops and thinks about it, they'll realise this. You support from your heart and you commentate from your head. And, and they really are separable. A couple of seasons ago, I often, I often quote this example when I'm asked about perception of bias. I did for BT a couple of seasons ago, a very big cup tie for my club, which is not a big club. Uh, and I arrived at the ground, left the family behind in the morning. I said, I don't want any more texts, anything. You know, I've stopped being a fan now. I'm getting to the ground, I'm gonna to go to work. <laughs> and I went up onto the gantry and I did this match in the company of Jermaine Genus, as, who was the co-commentator. Oh, yeah. And, when the final whistle had gone, 
um, my club had won and it was big win, it really mattered and put the microphone down and I did a little air punch and he said, what are you doing? I said, well, <laughs> I've got three sons out there who've been singing their hearts out. And he said, he said, I would have had no idea. And for me, that felt like the biggest compliment he could have paid. But it wasn't a surprising compliment because, to be honest, I'm not being arrogant, but I knew, you know, you, you, yeah. just, you just aren't thinking those thoughts. So anybody out there, please, I, I don't care who you're talking about, which of the commentators you perceive to be biased, I, I promise you they're not. Do you, do you ever envy uh, th those commentators who are able to kind of wear their bias on their sleeves? Absolutely. Well? Charlie, this is exactly the point I'm making about the local radio commentators. You know, my first local radio station was BBC Radio Leeds. And I was there in the very, very, I joined in 1990. I was there when Leeds won the title under Howard Wilkinson. But I was a junior man and uh, I did a lot of Huddersfield Town in the third division, up and down the land to Torquay and all of that stuff. And I, 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 for those two or three years, assumed, I mean, you can hear by my voice, I'm no Yorkshireman, I'm not from Huddersfield, they're not my team, but I assumed a real love of Huddersfield. It really mattered to me. And when they reached a playoff semi-final or whatever, had a big game, you know, they were permanently third division in those days. You know, I was totally up for it. And it, it's, it's really, um, really liberating. And yes, I am jealous of it. Yeah. Well, let, let's let's get stuck into the first example here. I mean, the, these are two very extreme examples of of how the how this kind of setup can flourish. Charlie, you'll you'll remember this game, of course. This was Newcastle four, Arsenal four. This was suggested by FPL Rolf. He says this clip from Justin Lockwood is superb, which I don't just description doesn't quite do it justice. I, I've condensed it all to its kind of constituent parts, just to give everyone an idea of how this trajectory of um, of fulfilment goes. I I just think it in it both in isolation and collectively, it is brilliant. Let's hear it. Barton steps up right-footed, bottom corner, beats to Chesney. Leon Best with a header, Best in, yes, it's two, that's two. There might be, there just might be, you know, there might be a grandstand finish here. Oh, hang on, it's another penalty, it's a penalty, it's another penalty. Here comes the penalty, Barton steps up right-footed, yes, 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 yes. Three minutes plus stoppages left. Here comes Barton's delivery. It's a teasing one. It's headed away by Arsenal. Check to Yote! Oh! 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 Boom! Boom! Check, check! The room! What a strike! What a goal! What a comeback! What a game! There are no words to describe it! Check to Yote! Lift the room of St James's Park with the most sensational strike you will ever see! What a game! What a team! What a moment! It's Arsenal 4, Newcastle United 4! You will never, ever see a game quite like this! Unbelievable! Um, Charlie, now if I was being particularly cynical here, I would say, you know, there's something quite knowing about, uh, about you know, potentially going down in history as, as you utter these incredible words, but I'm not going to be that cynical. I think, I don't know what, at what point, you know, you start becoming a fan in that instance, but it's it's just just nice, isn't it? It's just wonderful. Yeah, I think the boom boom uh, shake the room. I mean, because yes. clearly that's that's something that will res that's clearly something that was being said is uh, hmm. very resonant with supporters. And what I love, funny enough, uh, um, amidst that 
joyous commentary for Newcastle, there was a lovely example of part of what makes it so special. When that corner comes over, which leads to the 4-4 equaliser, did you notice Arsenal headed away? The, the opposition players don't have names. There's no concept of them as individuals. And that is a, never mind a remarkable moment like that. That is, <laughs> if you listen, if you happen to be listening to Radio Nottingham on the way up the motorway and you hear Mansfield Town against Cheltenham, the commentator will reel off the Mansfield names and it'll be, and Cheltenham on the attack now and Cheltenham looking dangerous here and Cheltenham will clear it. They don't have names. The only <laughs> names, the, the only team that have names is, is your team. Makes it a lot easier, surely. Half the research, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. As I said, I mean, that was a particularly extreme example, but I chose it mainly because of the trajectory of his sentiment. And, and, and as, as it stepped up a level each time, you could see that he was essentially becoming a fan and reflecting what Newcastle fans would have been feeling at that time. Um, the next example um, perhaps is more of a technical marvel from a commentary perspective, because I, th there are some aspects of it that I really want to discuss with you. And uh, this was suggested by Berkshire Blade. He says, then of Radio Sheffield and now of Quest EFL highlights man, Paul Walker, on Phil Jagielka's goal in the cup versus Leeds. Truly a screamer. You know, Jagielka brings it down on the chest. A long way out. Cracks it! Yeah! Oh! Yeah! What a goal! Yeah! Where do I start? I mean, um, the first thing is, Peter, um, I feel like that sort of commentary can only exist in kind of AM radio quality sound. If it was polished and sort of TV level, I don't think I'd enjoy it quite so much. But the main thing about it is kind of the cadence and the rhythm of how they go through that goal. I mean, again, it's, it's a fan. It's, it's someone with a vested local interest. But it's the way the words are delivered, which are which really cap it off for me. Well, yeah, absolutely. And, and actually, the scream at the start, <laughs> whether you're local or not, I mean, you can only get away with that, I would say, once every five or six years. It has to mm. be a really special moment because, truth be told, I think all of us who've commentated once in a while have just let a noise go out. And um, <laughs> if you do that, you risk ridicule. You know, you're, 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 you're treading a line between ridicule and maybe, particularly in a local sense, great approval because that's what the crowd have done. On the cop at Bramall Lane, they all screamed as Jagielka let go that shot. And, but I, I must say for Paul, who who's a good fella, I know him, um, that I think that was a perfectly justifiable one. I mean, Phil Jagielka <laughs> doesn't often score. He certainly doesn't often score that goal. He doesn't often score right. against Leeds United, the hate team from a couple of miles up the M1 in a cup tie. I mean, he he's totally justified in that reaction. And, and I suppose, again, without wanting to get overly serious about it, the trick is to understand that you can't do all that again for at least another four or five years. Hmm. <laughs> yeah, you have to nail it, that's for sure. Um, Charlie, final point on this one is um, and maybe this is probably a radio commentator thing rather than a TV commentator thing. But um, when such outbursts like that are 
kind of just tail ended, book ended with reading out the score and and reading out a score at a dramatic point of a match with its undulations. It's it's a, just a beautiful sound, it's like a beautiful collection of very <laughs> innocuous words all put together. But when they read out the teams and their score, it's just the rhythm of it. It's that's what gets me. I really love it. I loved his as well. The uh, the owning the fact that his voice had gone. Like, I lost my voice. I don't care. Yeah, that's slightly just... Barry Davison, wasn't it? Yeah, <laughs> it's brilliant. It's just like yeah. it's just saying what we're all thinking. Like, yeah, I'm I'm owning this. Yeah, that's a very solid start. I and um, I think we can all agree that that is truly something to enjoy. Um, what's the next one? This is rather more obscure. Yeah, um, Adam, th- this this is this is me, the football supporter, really, rather than the, the football broadcaster, and um, I've gone for those friends who have no name those people right. that you see week after week in the same place at your football ground those parts of the rhythm that actually we are so badly missing at the moment you know i i brought up my three sons to support the local team and for a long time as they were growing up we sat in the family stand behind the goal and there was another family of similar age and type with two children who we saw every week, nodded to, smiled, um, enjoyed <laughs> the moments with, never knew their name, never got to know them, didn't know where they live, all of that sort of thing. And now we've grown up as a family. And, you know, my wife and I have nice posh seats over the halfway line. <laughs> and the three boys have noisy seats behind the other goal. And, um, you know, we're in separate places. But as it happens, the two adults from the family we knew when we were young are sort of three rows away from us. And when we realised this, years after the first event, it was like meeting, you know, a long lost <laughs> uncle. It was a glorious moment. And and um, my my lads, when they when they come off the, you know, after a big home game and, and start reciting some of the things that they've heard from the people behind them and in front of them, who they see every week, it's it's hilarious in itself. And, and those kind of kinships that you grow through football, talking to complete strangers it, mm. and, and, and of course, hugging them when things go right. Yes. I think they're, they're a really special part of the sort of human existence of the humanity of sport. And I've embarrassed my family down the years because we can spill out of our ground at the end of the game at the same time as in a sort of non-threatening fixture, their visitors are spilling out. And I love to engage them. You know, whether we've won or lost, I love to go up to somebody who's come down from Burnley or whatever and say, hey, well done, you won. You know, or, you know, hard luck, long way back. You have to be careful because they think that you're taking <laughs> You know, it's, it's, yeah. um, it's, I love those conversations with strangers. And, and certainly over a period of time, I love those relationships which are both so close and yet so ridiculously distant with people you actually know nothing. They might be a mad axe murderer. And yet, you know, you sit next to them week after week. I, that's I, such a resonant one for me, Peter. I, I, I had a similar thing, um, exactly as you describe the people who sit in front of us and have done probably about 15 years. And we'll, and we'll chat every game, don't know their names. And then one time we moved recently to Walthamstow and Walthamstow Central Station, one of those guys was working for TFL and I was with my wife and he kind of greeted me like a long lost friend. We embraced, chatted, moved on <laughs> and walked on. And my wife was like, 
how like how where does that connect like how do you know that guy and i was like uh well she's just had a really just... good tube journey once yeah, that, yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> like and i don't even know his name but i've <laughs> i've spent like i've he's like an old friend and it is it's such a lovely part of going to football i've been pleasantly surprised here this is this is much more of a kind of um personal um situation than I expected do you know what I thought you meant what I thought you meant when you suggested this was you kind of the the random staff members at stadiums that you you kind of see every time as you walk around the perimeter of the pitch which got me thinking Peter uh, in your many years going up and down the country to football games have you ever met a tea lady have you ever seen a tea lady I'm not convinced they've ever existed <laughs> well tea lady no <laughs> I'm sorry Adam I'm not with you there they do exist they do <laughs> a you must know that they exist in press rooms particularly not the posh press rooms of the big clubs now where they serve you something. Oh, like yeah, the buffets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I, I think back, I do think back to my days of covering Huddersfield Town in the early 1990s. Mm. And at Leeds Road, the old stadium there under the stand, there was a little room where the press went and there was the tea lady. And she poured oh, out right. of a great... Actually serving tea and not just pot, serving you know, this... One of those great big teapots. And yeah. she was the tea lady. So... Wow. Mind you, that was 30 years ago, so maybe there aren't tea ladies anymore. But but you're right, well, by mean, the way, that the nice stewards, the, you know, the really good ones who say hello and welcome you. And listen, we three are in a privileged position where we have somewhere special to go and it's kind of their job to let you in rather than to stop you. But um, it's, uh, yeah, the familiar ones, they're great. They're great. Hmm. I, there I was thinking all these years that tea ladies were just this figurative concept that just illustrated whether someone was being friendly at a football club, despite their lofty position. They do actually <laughs> exist to serve people tea. You learn something new every week on the Football Clichés podcast. Peter, tell us about your final love of football. Um, this one, this one, very visceral, visual thing, isn't it? Yeah, yes, sort of ethereal. Um, I, funny enough, growing up, I didn't go to football. My football was consumed radio and television. And it was only when I went to university at Hull that I first started taking myself to football matches. And my first games were at Hull City at Boothbury Park. And I, I just remember the first time as an 18 year old, I was far too old to be having this first experience, um, just walking up and <laughs> wow. seeing the floodlit pitch, you know, and just being ah. overcome. And I am still overcome. And and by the way, this translates beyond professional football. Um, I remember playing school football and, and getting to the opposition school and walking out and looking at the pitch. And in my mind's eye, probably magnifying it far too much, I think, this is where it's going to happen. You know, this, this is mm. the stage. <laughs> and I, I was the second team goalkeeper, by the way. You know, and it, it, it was... Wow, goalie. I, I didn't have you down as a goalie. Yeah, well, I'm... I'm quite tall when I stand up. Okay. I would have thought centre-back. Well, yeah. I had one big call and it was keepers. Sorry, lads. <laughs> um, <laughs> that was my call. But um, the, the, the looking at the pitch was, was uh, very special then. And ever since I did first finally go to my first game of professional football, everywhere mm. I go now, and, and I promise you, it really hasn't changed. You, you walk through the stand, you walk up through that ugly word, the vomitory, um, and, <laughs> and you, you know, you, you see over the top and the place is lit or it's not lit. And there's just this sense of impending drama. There's, mm. and, and there's also this sense of 
um, what's out of bounds, what's untouchable to you. Yes. Only the yes, really special people can be on there. Mm. And, um, you know, it excites me to see it. I think your your point about it being a kind of universal thing, like you could go to Boothbury Park and, and, and through a kind of ramshackle entrance and, and, and see a bright rectangle of green and still be as enthralled as if you'd walked up the New Wembley or uh, or anywhere else. Um, Charlie, I mean, again, it's a thrill that hits you on the first game that you go to. You're walking up some steps and then suddenly you're, pre- you're presented, as Peter said, with this kind of forbidden patch of very bright green grass and you think well this is it and this is incredible and it's, it, it does strike you as you walk through the kind of all this concrete and then you're suddenly presented with it it is yeah i i would i mean i think anyone who loves going to football games that is one of the great sights and it is and i do particularly enjoy going to a ground i've not been to before and 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 especially sometimes if i'm going to a game i won't study uh, obviously different when you're working but if you're going as a fan and i won't study it too closely to see what my seat's going to be so there's an element of surprise when you go <laughs> up and, and it kind of unfolds in front of you and you're just it's yeah it is uh it is an amazing sight maybe there, there simply is no better color to be immediately presented with in epic proportions than floodlit green i think i think only football fans will, will quite grasp just how nice that very very particular shade of green is Anyway, Peter, lovely selections here, and and very wholesome they are too, and not even a hint of taking pleasure at anybody else's misfortune either, which is which is um, which is I don't know, slightly disappointing, I suppose. But anyway, perhaps we're going to find out a little more of the inner Drury as we hear about your hates of football, irrational or otherwise. Tell us about your first one. Number one, fatuous statistics. Um, right. Now, obviously, I, I have to be careful here because I like to an extent you live in a world of statistics and we are fed so many these days from so many different sources that your mind can go numb and you just blurt them all out and they're there and they just become a a mush of nothingness but my my favorite hate statistic at the moment are the ones that we still get pumped out about Mm -hmm. so and so have a dreadful record against the big (laughs) six who decides who the big six are this this ah, this well. thing oh they had a terrible record against the big six last season which mm. includes their results against arsenal now arsenal <laughs> weren't in the top six this is an entirely random choice of a club to counter something that someone somewhere has called the big six for some reason of spurious convenience what results against the big six is nothing because the big six is different every you know Chelsea can drop out of it. Arsenal weren't in it last year. Manchester City have only been in it for the last nine or ten years. Manchester United have been outside of it. Liverpool have only recently come back into the sort of magic circle. Big six, tosh. (laughs) No, I I disagree, but I think this is definitely worth debating. I mean, I don't think it's a purely league table thing. I I think we can agree that it isn't just simply based on, on last season's top six. I mean, it's... If you if you beat Arsenal, no matter what league position you're in, that would be considered to be a, a big deal. Like for some teams, that would be an historical win. So the, the big six is, I, I admit, probably doesn't fit with the kind of statistical aspect of it. But it's it's still a concept worth keeping in mind, isn't it? I understand that, Adam. But I, I would say that, yeah, great to beat Arsenal for the first time if you're a smaller club and all that. But last mm. season, it was a bigger deal to beat Wolves and Leicester than it was to beat Arsenal. It just was. The lead team will say yeah, that, no, and there's no, there's no statistic that <laughs> encompasses that. Mm. Yeah, it's I it's just it's just a made up convenience thing. Way, way back when Sky bought the Premier League, 
Everton yeah. were one of the magic four or five ah, or whatever it was then. It was the big Chelsea five, were yeah. second division or whatever. You know, it's when, when did Everton stop being one of the big ones? Who decided? Um, not sure. I mean, perhaps they're, they're part of the they're part of the medium sized seven or eight now. I believe <laughs> they're one of those who just might. There's this ongoing debate, Charlie, in the editorial floor at the Athletic about how we what's the house style for big six. Um, Something I've grappled with do, many do times it, do, as well. Do you put it in inverted commas? Do you capitalise big and uh, six? Yeah. Do you have to preface it with self-styled so-called? <laughs> the so-called, yeah. I've, <laughs> the I, so-called. I, I, I generally settled on, no idea if this was how style, uh, capital mm. B, capital S, but no inverted commas. That felt mm. sort of too, sort of, ooh, the big six. Uh, no, I, that, go, I go for inverted commas first mention, and then after that it does feel a bit indulgent, so that's we, we take them off after that. It, uh, it, no, not sure if that's the official line, but that's what I've decided. Anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but uh, something of a tangent there, but um, that perhaps that's quite apt, um, Charlie, because the sort of statistic that Peter was describing there, where you're talking about a record that a club has over a certain period of time or against a certain type of opposition, sometimes you can go a little bit too far down the labyrinth to the point where it becomes actually quite useless. Yeah, I mean, the, the issue I have, I, I mean, I like statistics and I like to use them when they're relevant, but the issue I have is when managers are asked something as you say, it's a really arbitrary thing. So it'd be like, Jose, you, you've never won on a Friday. How, how significant <laughs> will that be? And you and you kind of wonder, like, what the best case scenario is for that? Like, is he going to be yeah. like <laughs> massively significant? I think that's going to. I think that could really decide the game. I mean, he's obviously going to say, mm, I don't know. Cannot imagine how much shrift Jose Mourinho yeah, would give that. But yes, not a lot. But yeah, it's it's the ones. Where I, or it'll be like um, that was that was the ten thousandth goal Spurs have scored in the Premier League. How does that fit? And it's kind of like it's it's so arbitrary. It doesn't really tell you anything. I agree. I agree totally, Charlie. And and, and actually, it, I mean, again, this is can be as serious or as unserious as you want it to be. But actually, there's an extent to which, as we would all acknowledge, ahead of any given football match, history is meaningless. So I've done some work this morning ahead of tomorrow night's Liverpool-Burnley game saying, you know, and and I've gone digging and done the stuff and Burnley last won at Anfield in 1974. Kind of, which is, which is is interesting, sort of. Hmm. And there's no doubt, I won't be able to stop myself. There's no doubt Hmm. I'll use that fact in the game. Slade were top (laughs) of the pops. Yeah, exactly. But sort of, so what? How is that remotely relevant in the context of this fixture? Um, and, and all of those things. Last night did Leicester Chelsea, um, and what what did I come up with? None of the last seven meter. Well, broke it last night. I should have remembered at the final whistle. Never mind the start. But none of the last seven games between Leicester and Chelsea have produced a home win. Well, okay, that's interesting, yes. sort of. But how is it relevant in the context of the game that's actually on? And and so many of these. And, and so please understand, I'm not having a go at anybody else here because I'm as guilty as anyone of trotting out stuff, which is frankly incidental at best. Do you, are you ever suggested things that you think actually that just isn't relevant enough for me to really, to really mention? And has that changed? Is there more of an emphasis on that now than there was 10, 20 years ago? Well, I, I do think there are more stats. Yeah, I mean, they, they are churned out and, and, and there are stats that I am still laboring to come to terms with in a vain attempt to stay modern you know your ex <laughs> your xgs of this world 
which... Uh, now, how do you with, feel about XG? I mean, well, I, you don't hear commentators using it during a game very often. I mean, obviously, they have to be furnished with the information, I suppose. Yeah, well, the, the information is there if we want it. Um, mm. I, I think because it's... There's certain information that works better in a studio when there's time to talk around it. If you start a mm. sentence about XG when the ball's on the halfway line, you're in danger of missing a goal. And, yes, you know, that's that's the sort of ultimate sin. I, I had a fairly heated, not no, not very heated at all, but a lively debate the other day about XG and its its relevance. Because, again, my my argument against it was that someone somewhere, some human being has to have some sort of an opinion about how likely it is that a goal is scored in a yeah. scenario. Um, and therefore, it's not factual. It's still, in some sense, opinion based. The person with whom I was discussing it said, oh, hang on, this is an algorithm based on a gazillion different scenarios, <laughs> and it more or less is fact. And so I was prepared to accept Sounds that. like Beglin to me. Bet that was no, <laughs> he wouldn't have a clue what XG is. <laughs> Listener Sam takes us on something of a, an extra tangent here. He says that the comment on Sky's player graphics are often a treasure trove for meaningless stats and trivia. So this is the kind of little little bit of text or little bit of nugget of information they put underneath some players. A couple of examples here. Walsall playmaker Zeli Ismail, um, his caption on Sky was once teammate of Delhi Ali during his load at MK Dons in 2012-13, Charlie. Um, <laughs> tenuous? Yeah, I, I mean, I kind of like that in a way. I mean, that's the sort of thing we as journalists would put in a piece. You know, mm. if we were trying to, how can we make this guy uh, more familiar to our readers? Well, all our readers would have heard of Delhi Alley. Um, yeah. and, and indeed yeah. the year 2012. Yes, absolutely. Like, yeah, I kind of, I think that's better in a way. I, 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 to me, that feels more meaningful than a registered a club low 24 shots last season or something, mm. which I kind mm. of may leave me a bit colder. Yeah someone's job to compile these so I, I assume they do it in good faith but uh peter uh, hugh davis writes in and he, he appears to have an entire collection of these such as his his anger about it um he nominates a stat from a few year, years ago which said andreas wyman pounced to score his first goal on the opening day of a new season for four years <laughs> um my question here is and Bearing in mind, I guess there is a line between adding context and just having filler. So there must be a line somewhere. But how many how many caveats do you think you're allowed to have with a record? It's like, okay, <laughs> he's done this, but only on X, Y, and Z. I'm thinking maybe two. At least, yeah, I would say so. It comes up, funny, it always comes up at Christmas. You know, Aston Villa <laughs> haven't won on Boxing Day since 2003 or whatever. <laughs> you know, they probably haven't played on six of those Boxing Days. And, you know, mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. they haven't won at home on Boxing Day since... But, and you think, oh, really? Um, mm. You know, the, the, and, and listen, it's fun. I don't want to be a killjoy about it. And and oddly no, enough, it's the sort of thing that fans might have some fun with because they were there when they did win on Boxing Day or whatever. Always comes up on the opening day. Um, and the, the other one that gets me, by the way, is people say Arsenal have had their worst start to the season since. OK, so when oh, does, yeah, this, when does the start finish? When does it stop being the let's, start? Let's decide. Yeah. Let's decide. Um, some people, Peter, would argue Christmas. Once you get to Christmas, oh, you stop wow, starting. Oh, wow, that's really long. I'm just setting an early benchmark. Some people would say that Christmas is the end of the start of the season. Charlie, what are you saying? October? What's wrong with you? I'd go, I think it has to be a number of games. I mean, eight, something like that. Eight but I think games. Christmas. Is, yeah, I think start. I think Christmas is way too late for a start. Peter, I think, Peter, so so what what is, what is the information? Games. How should we package the information 
when Arsenal have their worst record after nine games ever. Is that that because that stopped being their worst ever start to a season? And it's nine games is else. a start. Nine games is a start. Definitely, I, th- I think. I think twelve. Okay, so what about when it's thirteen? <laughs> well, no, but you have you have to draw the line. It's not a start. You just you you no, simply know, but, express it but, in a completely different way. But my point, Adam, way. without sorry to be told, but my point is, no, how fine. would you and I articulate this if Arsenal lost their thirteenth game and therefore had their worst record after thirteen games ever? Does that do we now say it's it's if we're no longer allowed to call it a start? What is it? Mm, well, thirteen takes you just over a third of the way through the season, doesn't it? Yes. So it's yeah. their worst. That's not first. a bad cutoff point. A third. Yes, splitting <laughs> it into like a yes, into like a play. That's that's a good way of doing it. But I mean, in <laughs> similar context, act. Peter, uh, what's an early goal? Or, I mean, I'm thinking twenty minutes. Yeah, it's it's whatever feels convenient at the time. Mm. You know, Opta mm-hmm. classify a late goal as being anything from seventy-six minutes onwards. Do they? Do you know, I heard on the radio yesterday that middle age apparently ends at 54. And that horrified me oh. as a 53-year-old. That means by the end of this year, I'll be old. How are you going to make the most of then your last year of middle age? <laughs> I thought you said by the end of this podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Listener Joe Tyler wants to draw the line under all of this by saying, surely the only stat that matters is the one in the top left-hand corner. Mm-hmm. Have, you ever said, have you ever said that, Peter? Yes! <laughs> slightly problematic these days because they pop up everywhere I mean BT are doing it bottom left which I, you know well, BT have ruined, for me. It. ruined it <laughs> I can't say that they there's nowhere else for it to go uh, I'd love to know why they did that the only th- thing I can think of is that um, they were so worried by people um, walking past pubs just to peer through the window to see the score <laughs> and that they were less likely to find out if they had to peer you know if it was hidden behind people's heads and therefore they would have to go home and buy a subscription that's the only explanation i can think of or maybe the publicans said to them can you do that because that would mean people have to come in and then once they're in they're like oh well maybe i'll stay it's uh, it's an interesting thing as, a, as an experienced pub passerby for checking scores you know late 2000s i think that's that's very possibly the case anyway let's let's think about that another day peter tell us about your next thing that you absolutely despise about modern football well i'm a, a romantic and a traditionalist and i'm i'm sure well i'm fairly confident i'll get a lot of sympathy for this and that is unnecessary kit changes um <laughs> i i really don't see why manchester united or liverpool should need to change their kit until and unless they're playing away to a team that also plays in red and chelsea and everton until and unless they play away against a team that also plays in blue. There's fabulous, glorious, unparalleled tradition and history in English football. And I appreciate that we live in a commercial world and I appreciate Mm -hmm. that shirts sell, but it makes me weep a little bit inside when I see (laughs) teams wearing colours that bear no relation at all to their history, their standing, their place in our memories, and in our hearts. Watford and Norwich only need to change their shirts when they play each other. Um, You you know, that's possibly not necessarily the case, but you you see where I'm coming from. Yeovil and Plymouth only need to change shirts when they're playing each other. Uh, It's, it's, Mm. I, I, I do know why. I've admitted I know why. It's because there's money to be made from having an extra kit or two, but I hate it. I mean, commercial 
considerations apart, that's the reality, as you say, of, of, of the modern game. But I, I, I was interested to know on what level it affected you. And you appear to be, it appears to be, you're coming from a kind of traditionalist perspective. You know, these clubs have their colours and they should be celebrated and they should be embraced and used wherever possible. Charlie, for me, when, I, when I'm when i tuning into a game that I've had in my... As a neutral, you know, if this is like a mid-ranking Premier League game that's on BT at 12.30 on a Saturday, and I've had it in my head all morning that, yes, I'm going to be watching, I don't know, Leicester versus Wolves at 12.30. In my head, I've got, it, I've got an image of what they're going to look like playing out in the pitch, and, and it, it's a very agreeable image, <laughs> and it makes me want to watch it more. Then when they're walking out in change colours, it's not a commercial consideration that hits me. It's not a historical thing. It's just this looks worse than it could have done. Yeah, I I know what you guys mean. I mean, it, it's not a. It doesn't bother me massively, but I <laughs> I, 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 I can see, I, I can see that uh, there is that element to it, and aesthetically, it's it's uh, it doesn't have the majesty that you would from those from, as you're seeing it in your mind's eye when you're 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 building when you're doing your own pre-match build-up. Talking of that precisely, beautifully and gloriously. Wolves played West Brom in a proper famous fixture at 12.30 on Saturday and they yep. wore the right shirts. Hallelujah. And it was a really good game. Yes, it so, was. There you go. Maybe and there's a correlation. I think there is a correlation because, I mean, football is consumed very much in, in theory and you, you a lot of mental energy is, is kind of... It, used up before the game even starts so if if the teams are wearing the colors that you expected them to wear then that fulfills a lot of that stress uh, on a more serious note of course you, you mentioned Liverpool Manchester United um, this had the the colorblind community up in arms because they simply couldn't distinguish between them and that surely in 2020 that should be a consideration for the Premier League shouldn't it funnily enough I think it is um, and I, th- I think if that I hadn't heard that but if that is a serious complaint they will take it seriously um, mm. because we do live in a television age and uh, we live in an international media age and that is really important and, and things people might laugh at like the visibility of shirt numbers is is very much on the agenda I know that uh, and colour comes into that I mean back in the black, black and white television age it was even more pertinent because two teams could be yeah. wearing very different strips that look the same on the box Um but no, that, that's that's an important thing. And I was just going to say, I'm slightly hypocritical about all this because I do mm-hmm. understand that teams have always had a second strip, uh, at least a second strip, not necessarily a third years ago. But my distaste for some of the alternative strips here is only because they're not the alternative strip they were when I was 10 years old. <laughs> and, you know, I was, was going to ask not, that because did it... Did it... Like. What what did the convention used to be? And uh, apologies for yellow and blue. For my Just yellow and blue for but everybody. It, but, but but in like the say seventies and eighties, would teams also only wear their chain strip if they had to? What was the convention? That's that's a then? very good question. I mean, I I think back to I, I remember seeing Liverpool playing a yellow all yellow strip, and oddly enough, I've just thought that. The 1980 FA Cup final, in which West Ham as a second division team famously beat Arsenal. Beat Arsenal. And yeah. Arsenal, if memory serves, were in their yellow shirts. Now, mm. whether we were still in a bit of black and white telly there, whether claret and blue and the red and white might not have been friends with each other, I'm not sure. Maybe there was a, a, a good reason for change there. But, Charlie, I suspect uh, what you identify there is the... Uh, crass inconsistency in my argument and um, <laughs> <laughs> and that I'm just I'm just a crumbly old fool who needs to find something else to worry about 
Uh, I wouldn't put it. <laughs> wouldn't put it quite like that. But it, it was good to challenge your point of view. But I think we are still relatively on board with the fact that teams should wear their right colours where possible. Peter, we've reached something of a crescendo here. I'm looking forward to talking about this last hatred of yours. Tell us all about it. Yeah, well, my my hatred is of referee haters. And I, mm. I appreciate we're supposed to be having a, a light conversation here and I don't want to get all That's preachy okay. about it. But, but the extent to which at all levels of football, on the park from under eights up, certainly into the stands, certainly into the dugouts and onto elite football field, the extent to which people begin from the position that the referee is an idiot, he's wrong, he's here to spoil <laughs> my day, yeah. uh, I think is a real stain on football from top to bottom, from dads on the under eight touchline who are mm. onto the referee from the minute go. I, you know, I, I often quote a, an early rounds FA Cup tie I did four or five years back, a bit longer ago than that, where two small teams were playing each other. One kicked off and as in lower league football, passed it short and the other bloke belted out the line and it went out for a throw in. And the throw-in was given to the defending team and the attacking team's manager was immediately and audibly, because it was in a small ground, into the yeah. ear of the linesman, who had obviously got it right and was screaming. Straight away as well. Straight away. To generate that seconds. much anger within seconds. Well, because, that, and that's my point, because it was yeah. preconceived. That was mm. part of the plan of his day or his default action right. to blame the referee. To blame the referee. And it, and it goes for supporters. When I... On occasion, I am behind the goal. If I swap tickets with one of my boys behind the goal for whatever reason, a friend's coming or mm. whatever, and and I hear supporters, listen, we all put our hand up and go, offside, when we've got no idea whether yep. it's offside because we want it to be offside. Yes. But when it's an offside call at the far end of the field and the flag goes up or doesn't <laughs> or whatever, and, and usually, again, I get it, I'm not being silly, everybody goes offside and sort of hope, hope it's yeah. offside and it's not. Yeah, and they say, oh, for that's offside. And and I want to turn around and say, what on earth makes you think you've got a better view than he has? You know, I, I understand logical. the yeah. instinct to want them to be wrong, but there's, yeah. you know, I'm sorry to sound as if I've got a halo on my head here. I haven't. I, you know, I've screamed at referees, but the referee is the facilitator of the football match. Without the referee, there isn't a game, you know, and the referee is a human being who absolutely yeah. will make mistakes just as we all do every day. And mm -hmm. God knows why they do it, honestly. I mean, I've refereed youth football and it's horrendous <laughs> with, you know, and, and even, even the parents on your team are saying, come mm. on, Peter, come on, can't you see that? And you want to go over and say, listen, you do it then, <laughs> you do it. I'm doing my best, yeah. he's doing his best. Yeah. And if I go away here, there won't be a game. And honestly, I and the referees are humans, and I've met a few of them, and they're decent blokes trying to oh, do their thing. Are. And it's terrible um, the extent to which they are the automatic enemy. What did you make, Peter? Did you read the interview um, that Michael Oliver gave in the Mail on Sunday? It was very interesting hearing a referee's point of view. I mean, because obviously normally we, we don't get to hear that. And I, personally, I found it uh, fascinating just to get, to get that insight um, and kind of their side of things because they, they are such a punch bag yeah i i flicked it to be honest charlie and actually i was meaning to to read it properly so i i must do that um i, I mean i think michael oliver who seems to me a very level-headed guy is a, is a good example of a referee 
who has had to teach himself a certain mindset. And, mm. and sometimes referees get accused of arrogance. And, and my argument on their behalf would be, how on earth can they do it, certainly at that level, without extraordinary arrogance? Because they have 22 alpha males on the field arguing at every turn, plus the coaches, and under normal circumstances, 50,000 people bellowing at them. And you need to have a strength of character to say, regardless of all of your opinions, mm. I'm sticking yeah. to mine. I really, I really enjoy when people get angry by referees being perceived as arrogant, as if, as if that might be a bad thing for their job. If anything, that would make you more resolute and more insulated from the crap that you would have to deal with. But um, I'm, I'm interested that you've raised this um, for two reasons. Firstly, there's something slightly referee about you. I think you've got a referee's name. We've talked about this on this podcast before. You've definitely got a referee's name. Can you imagine? And Peter Drury had no hesitation at pointing to the spot. You have, you have a referee's name. I'm, 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 I don't know whether it's a good or a bad thing and how you're going to take it, but you've got a referee's name. And the fact that you have admitted to refereeing a game just reinforces that completely. So, um, um, But secondly, perhaps more deeply, I think your sympathy with referees is perhaps because... Hating referees is a bit like hating commentators because they're not out to stitch your team up. The job is a lot harder than you think it is. And crucially, they've experienced way more top flight football than you ever have. So I, th I feel like there's a parallel there. And I guess linesmen are a bit like co-commentators um, in the same way. So do you have a kinship here? Do you feel like you suffer from the same kind of over scrutiny? I think that's not impossible. To be fair, Adam, I've, I've never thought of it that way. Uh, mm. I, I, I think um, I'm a softie. I don't have a thick skin. And so yeah. I feel I feel an empathy with others whose skin is certainly challenged in that regard. Um, and, and I just think, again, without wanting to get too heavy about it, I think we live in such an unforgiving society where, yeah. you know, you, you're not allowed to make a mistake anymore. You know, mm. I'm not talking about repeated failure to do the job i'm talking about making human error and people get vilified and and hurled That's out true. of their position and demoted for getting something wrong and yet sometimes you know inexplicably wrong you know you think about the poor fellow was it david coote who was the fourth official for the the var for the the pickford van dyke situation yeah which yeah on the face of it well not on the face he got wrong he got wrong in a very high pressure moment and and people are people can rightly say you know this wasn't the spur of the moment he had time to look back and look back and look back and he got it wrong and yes he got it wrong but he got it wrong in the sense that everybody who goes to work every day sometimes gets something wrong and the poor guy exactly. what he's had to live through since and every reference to him since and i'm guilty every reference to him since is david let's hope he has a good game because he was the bloke who you know blah 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 and it becomes a sort of appendage and, and I just feel deep sympathy for them because you can't be a referee without having one of those. It's a very good example, actually, because, Charlie, I, th I feel like a mistake by a referee is, 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 is kind of... We don't talk about the mechanics of making a mistake by, uh, by a referee in the same way that we don't really analyse sort of goalkeeping mistakes and why they happened. Um, they, they are essentially honest cognitive errors, and it's the ramifications of those errors which seem to get pounced on. When that's something that's way out of the referee's control. A mistake is simply a mistake, however you look at it. it why don't we? Why have we not wised up to this? I, the only reason I solution I can think of, or the reason why, is because it's such a tradition. 
referees are so such an easy target that it that it would take such a culture shift to stop haranguing them surely yeah and i think the um the absence of a kind of right of reply doesn't help because we're never we're never hearing that why don't they come out after games and explain their decisions because you would still rip them apart there'd be no point yeah exactly and also i think what they would say is i saw it you know i gave it as i saw it which is all they can say and that uh, yeah that would inflame people more um but (laughs) but 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 i but i think there is I, i do think that plays a part because we you you know when you're foaming at the mouth when you're frothing at the mouth raging at a decision as you say there's this perception of arrogance um Mm. and you can kind of blow it up even further in your own mind that you know they yeah either that they were trying to stitch your team up or that they don't care they don't get how you know big a thing it is but i mean even you know what pt you're describing there on on some level as reporters you know as journalists we we get an element of it that you know lots of journalists now have as you know a variant of in their twitter bio you know biased against your team obviously a kind of reference to the fact that journalists are often accused of bias or if they do make a mistake are kind of uh jumped on so it is yeah it, it is kind of a part of it unfortunately but yeah i mean refs are definitely definitely the ones that are uh, you know I just, I just, I just want an occasional um, football fan or anyone who rings into six oh six or anything like that, just, just to understand the fact that asking referee to come out and explain a decision is basically synonymous with I want them to make me feel better. That's <laughs> all it is. I want them to make me feel more at ease with what I've just witnessed. Otherwise, there's nothing that could be achieved. Um, so yeah, I'm, I'm glad you come out in defence of these jobs worse, Peter. <laughs> um, Game spoilers. <laughs> Again, such He's a pompous insult to throw at someone, a, a job's worth, as if that was a word you would ever use anywhere else in life. But um, but yeah, somehow you've managed to navigate through your hates of football without offending anybody still. I hope so. um, incredible diplomacy and incredible skill. And what a pleasure it was to have you. I'm so glad you joined us. Um, uh, you were as at home on the Football Clichés podcast as I kind of expected you to be. Um, have you? Do you feel like you've got a lot off your chest here? I really do. I, I'd like to do this for an hour every day. Yes. <laughs> why don't we can we arrange that it's my podcast it's not yours so, uh... <laughs> can, I just, can I just ask you one final thing while we have you Pete you, you mentioned there about being a softie and uh, you know f- finding it hard getting criticism I mean how do you I mean you're not on Twitter is that right do you close yourself off from all that um, is that a deliberate thing and, and, and yeah I mean is that a difficult element of it the fact that you are your words are so scrutinised and poured over Yes, yeah, um, and that that is an element of it. I'm I'm not on Twitter largely because I'm a dinosaur, but also uh, in in the in that professional context, um, whether Twitter is being kind to me or it's being unkind to me, I know that it is going to impact on my mindset. So if mm. I have one of those lovely days where everybody seems to think I've said something quite clever and nice and it, the game's gone well, um, I worry that if that thought is overly reinforced, I'm going to feel the need to articulate the next game in the same way. And it doesn't work uh-huh. like that. And you, part of my job and yours is to be in some sense spontaneous and to deal with the moment and to be real. And uh, I like to believe I'm authentic and that I really do do it from the heart. And and, and if, if too many other factors are weighing in on me, then I think that could spoil it for better and worse. And on, obviously, yes, on those days when people think I'm an idiot who spoiled the game for them, um, I'd rather not read it. 
because I I don't have a thick skin. It really, really hurts. And and just I know we've got to finish, but I, I feel really sorry for young people in my job who are getting into this and who feel the need to be on Twitter, which I understand because that's the modern way. And indeed for young footballers. I imagine being the new 19-year-old left back for Charlton Town yeah. who has a bad game, who's just fulfilled a dream by playing his first game of professional football and gets told by 100 people he's never met, you were useless, you shouldn't be wearing our shirt. <laughs> I, that's just mm. not fair. And that, in a sense, yeah. that, that refers back to the whole referee haters thing. We, we live in a society which is horrendously unforgiving. And um, I'd rather sort of decide for myself and within my friends and people I trust when I need forgiving and when I don't. No, it's 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 very it's not inexplicable to me why you're not on Twitter. That I, I perfectly get that. Um, I've enjoyed your TikTok though. That's always been good fun. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, uh, Charlie. Anyway, um, thanks once again. Extra thanks for you for abandoning your your family to uh, join us on the podcast once again. Let's, yeah, let's, I, let's I, I should say as well. Out. He is my son is six months. He's not uh, a complete newborn. So um, I, oh, I feel yes, bad as well because yes. uh, so I'm basically off for the second half of his first year and i've had when i said i was going paternity lots of people saying like oh you know congratulations good luck with it i did want to say like he was born six months ago he's fine um but yeah it's it's, uh you know it's great to be with him and having an hour you know an hour break makes me appreciate him all the more so thank you for for this it's been great well i guess the running theme of this episode has been over scrutinizing things that people say so i guess there's only one way to really end this which is to enjoy 37 seconds this is courtesy of joel hook by the way wonderful work by him in research uh 37 seconds of Jamie Carragher simply saying there during his pre-match <laughs> analysis. I always feel anything that goes there and you just see that space there. There, there, there. <laughs> there. There. He just tries to play offside there. <laughs> and there's no doubt there. There. And you stop it now. There. There. <laughs> There, or maybe take it back one if I can. There, perfect. That's that's what I'm looking for. <laughs> yeah, that brings us neatly back to the concept of semantic satiation, Peter. The more often you hear a word, the less explicable it becomes. Anyway, I <laughs> hope people haven't got that um, sensation from this podcast. Uh, thanks once again. Absolute pleasure to have you. Brilliant. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Charlie. That was good fun. Cheers, Charlie, and see everybody next week.